Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Interviews are conducted with individuals who are doing clinical work, as well as leading attachment theory researchers. Your host, Karen Doa Buckwalter, will introduce you to Michael Trout. This episode is the seventh in a 12-part series with Mr. Trout. Be sure to visit us on Podbean, iTunes, or Google Play for previous podcasts, as well as future episodes. And now your host, Karen Doa Buckwalter. Hello, everybody, and I am back today on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast to continue my discussion with Michael Trout um, about the beginning of infant parent psychotherapy and beginning to understand attachment theory and applications. So thank you for being here again today, Michael. Very happy to be here. Yes. So, you know, we've talked so far about babies and parents and working dyadically and looking at foster care and other scenarios of parenting beyond um, general parenting. But what I want to start out with today is how you began to see the applications of some of these ideas to adults. Because I know you had a practice seeing adults uh, for many years there in Champaign, Urbana. And um, And in Michigan before that. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, um, talk to me about how you began to think about this in terms of individual therapy with adults. Well, it's a, it's a funny question for me and probably wouldn't be a funny question for anybody else. Uh, it's just that for me, there was no real transition. There never seemed to be a difference, except in the minutia of interaction in the office or at home between treating adults this way and treating babies and dyads this way. Um, I was so enraptured by a developmental perspective on everything and everybody that came into the office uh, there just didn't seem to be a line um, I, I think there was there was in me at least and I think in, in as well in a number of other people a hunger to sort of see whether this infant mental health stuff held sway by always including adults in our practice so we could get a look, so to speak, at things that the other end of the spectrum. We, we wouldn't get to, uh, always a chance, I did, because I'm old, but we didn't always get a chance to see the same people when they grew up. But we could at least see babies and in the same day, see grown-ups and imagine how one would turn into the other. So my work with adults always was shaped by infant mental health theory, by developmental theory in general, but certainly by attachment theory. And there were days when um, the baby simply emerged, sitting right there on my couch, just simply emerged from the adult. It was as if there was a transformation right in front of my face. Um, Are there... Any specific examples of that that stand out in your mind that you could 
talk about now in a way that obviously is not uh, breaking confidentiality or anything like that, but. Well, for some reason, this man has been on my mind the last couple of days, so I guess I'll mention him, uh, though he's not different particularly than many other examples I could offer. Uh, it happened in the office I'm sitting in right now on the couch just behind me. It's a lovely man, very, very accomplished, brilliant, uh, married, four kids, happy, uh, in most respects, extremely successful uh, financially and academically, uh, but extremely unhappy. And it's a very long and detailed story, especially out of his mouth. And that became the point, actually, because he was incredibly verbose and articulate and could really go on for days um, about about his life and about the details of it and so on. And it was, I was captured. He was a very interesting fellow. It took me several sessions to notice, however, that we weren't getting anywhere at all. We hadn't identified really the source of his unhappiness. There was a vague suggestion that there might be some sort of sexual addiction, but it didn't really look like that because when he would describe the events out, out in public or at a, at a airport or something like that where he was, drawn to somebody, his description was not at all like any adult sex addict I'd ever heard. He would speak of wanting to be noticed, not really wanting to have sex, just wanting to be seen by the other. Um, so he would sort of woo the woman across the room um, with eyes and maybe eventually conversation, but with no point other than winning her attention. I'm distilling it significantly here. He never would have said it that way. That's just what it be, began to become apparent to me. Um, to make a very long story short, one day he was going on and on. And by the way, don't imagine that he was boring because he wasn't. I had to really trip myself up, else I would just gladly sit there for the session listening to this fascinating, successful, articulate guy. I would have to stop myself from doing that and say, what are we doing here? Other than he's giving me money so he can talk and I can be fascinated. So one day in the middle of his going on and on like that, I did something that I think is just awful. I've written about it since as a terrible, terrible thing for any therapist to do, never recommended. I held a piece of paper up in front of my face and I kept it there for a minute or two. And he stopped, I could hear. And when I put the paper down, he was staring at me with rage, but he was also weeping. He called me a number of names. He said that I had abandoned him. Um, and he went on to say that at that very moment, sitting on my couch, he was standing in his mother's doorway he was about two. It was the day of or soon after the birth of his little brother, the next one down. Um, his mother was lying in bed. The room was dark. The fan was going, he said. Uh, and his brother was in bed with him and his mom was gone. When I asked what he meant by that, he said, what do you mean by what I mean? She was gone. She was gone from me. It wasn't just that she was paying attention to my brother. She was, she was just gone, and I never did get her back. 
what I later pieced together is that that was his way of describing pretty severe uh, postpartum depression. Ah. But this boy took it entirely personally and experienced for him a quite literal and permanent loss of his mother on that day. Uh, he remembered that he would, he gave up that day, he backed away and didn't come back very often to stand in that doorway. He doesn't remember when she got better. He just remembers that he took to sitting on the back of the couch, which was next to a window, and he would look for his sister coming home from school every day. And she would play with him and talk to him, and he became very attached to her. And by the way, grew up to marry a woman with the same name as his sister. How interesting. I felt that day as if we had finally, with the help of infant mental health, we had finally broken through and understood what it was he'd been trying to tell me. He'd been wonderfully successful and utterly miserable because he misses his mommy. And of course he doesn't, not really, not really anymore. In fact, an odd thing in his social history was that he described his mom as uh, a non-entity in his life, which is of course simultaneously a great big fat lie and a way of forming, showing, demonstrating his defenses about her. He needed her to be a non-entity so that he could go on and become so successful and so articulate, but always, always, always yearning for her, or as it would turn out, any number of substitute women to look at him, encounter him, see him. Hmm. So that would be an example. <clears throat> very helpful. It wasn't a bit different, uh, that session. It wasn't a bit different from sitting with a mom and a baby. The, the techniques, so to speak, such as they were, were identical. The, the clinical theory, the developmental theory, is all pretty much the same. What gave you the idea to put the paper in front of your face? the intervention you would never recommend? Um, frankly, uh, no theory whatsoever, just desperation. I didn't, I, I didn't trust myself to interrupt him because he was too interesting and I was desperate to help him. I couldn't help him the way we were going. I, I would abandon him too, even though I'd be very attentive, but I would abandon him because I wouldn't see the real him. I wouldn't see the baby standing in the doorway. And that's what he needed me to do as his therapist. I wasn't being his friend or a chum over coffee. I was there to help. So I, I, had, I took a, a drastic step to cut him off. Really, I had no idea it would prove regressive. Believe me, I'd love to claim that I, I had a scheme all, all the while, uh, but I didn't. His regression was a complete shock to me. But so was his softening, I mean, his weeping and his incredible vulnerability when I put the paper down. I don't know why he didn't dump me that day. He, he was very angry at me, but he was still so soft and so um, there. I think that was a kind of attachment born that day, oddly enough, even after such a nasty act of what one, what some might think 
looked like rejection or abandonment on my part. But you came back. I came back, but, well, yes, I guess I did. I guess I did. And she didn't. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about it that way. He never did waken her. Yes. Well, that's, that's a fascinating example. Um, I think that your question, what are we doing here? I love that question. If, if we're looking at a developmental perspective with adults and um, also understanding attachment theory, what are we doing when we're seeing these people? How would you answer your own question? I think what we're supposed to be doing is paying attention, of course, which to me means two things. In the moment, giving all of our attention to the other, which has a, a reciprocal effect on the other on purpose. It's exactly the same thing that a mother or father or a grandparent or an adoptive parent does with a precious baby. We give them in the moment, all of us, knowing that it will have an effect on the other to be given uh, a human being. But paying attention to me also means being um, alert is not a good enough word. Um, vibrating, I guess, with vibrating with uh, eagerness to collect the data that will emerge if we're paying attention. It, it's, th those are data that don't emerge unless we're paying this particular exquisite kind of attention with complete presence and attunement. Then we see things we wouldn't maybe otherwise see uh, with, a, with a person of any age. And Michael, I'm sitting here thinking, you are so good at that complete presence and attunement to the point that I've been in situations where you're talking with someone and it almost overwhelms them. They're, they're so paid attention to. Um, how did you get so good at that? Uh, I don't know that I would concur that I am particularly good at it. Uh, I think maybe for me, it's a matter of, um, that's what I've got. I, I don't think I'm exceptionally brilliant clinically. I don't, I'm pretty bored with theory, uh, except where it's applicable somewhere. I don't, I don't sit endlessly and listen to psychoanalytic papers, even though I should. I draw, I draw funny pictures and hand them to my neighbor in the auditorium more often than I do listen intently enough. That's a little secret about me. <laughs> so there's many things I don't have and, and I'm not good at, but I, I do know how to pay attention. And I do know something about how it feels. Um, I was born to way too young parents um, who were preoccupied in many respects, but my mom was also thrilled to pieces to be, to have me, uh, because I made her look just really good to her friends and others. Uh, I, was, I was a pretty baby and smart enough that she could at least, if she'd add a lot to, to it, she could make it sound like I 
was already making full sentences by the time I was two months old and so on. So she, she liked being with me. And until the next baby came along, I think I got a lot of attention. But the person that probably taught it to me the most was my, my grandmother. And I, I really do feel some days when I'm sitting with a patient and not knowing what else to do, I sort of feel myself back at the kitchen table at five o'clock in the morning, sitting with Granny in the dark, usually with her Bible open and uh, a cup of coffee for each of us. Mine mostly Milnot, uh, a kind of cream that was popular back in the 40s and the 50s. And she would make me a cup and we would just sit. And I don't remember a thing she ever said. She didn't particularly preach to me from the, that Bible she had open. We would just sit and she would, I guess she would probably just pay attention to me. I had her. I really had her in those moments. <coughs> yes, well, you know, if, if therapy truly is a way of being with people, then this is, you, you, you say it's what you have to offer, but it, it is potentially the most important thing. And I uh, was also just sitting here wondering, what if there are therapists that can go back to any pictures of that? That's a wonderful question. Because you had two immediately. Um, makes me think Good. about if, if you don't have some experience like that to channel. Uh, yeah. But I think those experiences I just described to you exist in a larger context of non-presence from most everybody else. My grandfather, my father, who was completely absent, not just physically, but psychologically all of my life. And I think that's the way it is for a great many clinicians. Uh, they who can identify the absent part, the longing for someone to be present with them. They can identify that much more acutely than the other part. But th there's nothing wrong with that either. Uh, that longing can lead us to reaching for levels of intimacy with others that we might not have been able to reach if we hadn't had so much longing in us. It puts us at risk, of course, of using people to meet our own needs, of having not only lousy boundaries, but um, lousy clarity about who's, who this thing is for, this therapy thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. But nonetheless, I think we can reach into whatever we've got, and we've, we've all got loss and lack, as well as presence and warmth. Uh, we may not have had a very long, and, and thinking about when we had the, the good things may make us sad because it immediately makes us realize for what a short time it was there in our lives, or how awful it was when we lost that fourth grade teacher, or the neighbor lady, or or our grandma. But nonetheless, that's that's where the richness may come. And so we have to go there. 
So I know you've also, in this topic of working with adults, you've worked with many different kinds of people, including incarcerated mothers, and um, just um, as we talked about earlier, adoptive parents, and um, what, what do you, you know, um, I guess I'm searching for, and it's so hard, you know, I'm doing what we said not to do. I want to like the three steps to, to really apply attachment theory to adults. You can do that because it's not hard. Okay, it's let's talk about hard. that. I don't think it's very deep either. It, it is merely means think about the person in front of you as very little as well as very big. And oh, I love that. Think about the person in front of you as very little as well as very big. Don't get stuck on one of them. Don't infantilize. Don't pity. Uh, don't sympathize with too much. Um, but allow the, the vision of the other as a child to join the room. I guess that's what I couldn't do with that fellow I just mentioned to you until I put the piece of paper in front of my face. I was only engaging him as this clever, successful businessman and academic adult. I forgot about the other possibility until I put the piece of paper up there. Uh-huh. An example would be, uh, you mentioned working with the mothers, in, uh, incarcerated mothers. Uh, they were, for the most part, uh, not happy to see me. They, they grumbled about going down the hall to the group room. And sometimes they acted like they didn't have anything to say, but who cares? Did, is, that, is that somehow a surprise that some yokel uh, shrink walking in off the streets uh, should want to sit down and talk with them and they're supposed to be happy about it? Of course not. That's a complete misunderstanding and lack of appreciation for where they come from. But I could show them something about babies, even something very, very brief, and they were suddenly there. And I knew it was not only because many of them had their babies on the unit, and many others didn't and wanted to and missed them and worried about them, but also because every single one of them, by definition, and, and I would think maybe even especially so, because they had committed crimes that got them in prison, are babies. Mm. Like most of us, they're acting like it. Yes. So they're acting bored and disgruntled and disgusted and hating experts, uh, partly because we are a bunch of dopes and we don't understand what their life is really like, but also partly because uh, they haven't had such a hot time with men, number one, Number two, with experts. Uh, number three, certainly with authority figures. So we talk about that. So I show them a little piece of film about babies, and then pretty soon we're talking about uh, all the things that they've experienced, and it gets real, real fast. And no longer am I just the outside shrink who doesn't understand them. Oh, I am still that. I mean, because I really am. Mm -hmm. That's not the barrier anymore. Now we're talking about 
how desperate they are to not have their baby experience what they did. Mm. They don't want their babies to end up where they ended up. And we can go, go from there to start talking about before they ended up there. What did they experience in the world? And many of them didn't want to complain about their mothers because their mothers were at that very moment taking care of their babies because they're in prison. But they're scared about that too because they remember that when that same mother took care of them when they were little, the following things happened and they were awful. Yes. One day we were talking about, um, I don't remember how we got into the, the conversation, but we were talking about um, boyfriends and choices and the, the women were kind of laughing with each other about how they'd all picked real yin-yangs for boyfriends and that's how they got involved in drugs and how they got in prison in the first place. And they all thought that was pretty funny. I didn't think it was funny at all. And I wanted to know how that happened and uh, they just, they said the obvious things, you know, oh, they're much more exciting or I don't go for geeks and so on. And I said, okay, how many of you in this room remember sitting on a stoop waiting for your dad to come visit and he didn't show up? I bet everyone. Every hand in the room. And there was no more giggling. Now there was not, I'm not going to say there was weeping, although there was a bit of tearing. There was a new kind of rage at the abandonment by the first father and their yearning and their hunger all these years since for someone who would fill that spot. Or for a mom who would bring home a nice man who would like them, maybe and not do bad things to them. So both, both losses, loss of father and loss of mother at the very same time. Mm. Now we were really talking about something that could actually get them what they want, which is for their own babies to not have it turn out that way for them. They could actually decide that day, and I'm not suggesting that lives turned around or anything that day, but they could start the decision that day what kind of a man should be in my life if I want my baby to have a better deal than I did? If I can't on my own stop hanging around exciting, drug-using uh, criminals, could I do it for my baby? And um, often, sometimes often, I'm not sure which word to use, um, parents can come up with a different kind of motivation when it when they see it as involving their children. Sometimes they can't too. Mm -hmm. They're so mad about it all that while they say they want a better deal for their child, they actually sabotage their child's existence and make the child repeat exactly the same painful life. But yeah. you're absolutely right. Sometimes it works the other way. Yes. So we've said uh, one step in, in, in applying attachment theory to adults is think about the person in front of you um, as both a, a young child and a grown-up. Um, 
let's take a pause here. Um, and when we come back after our break, we'll see what other thoughts you have on that. Okay. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. This episode is the seventh in a 12-part series with Mr. Trout. Please follow our site, www.theknowledgecenteratchadock.com, or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory.